0: is it possible for us to live in such a way where the worries about the future don't rob us of the joy and possibilities of today? I believe that it is. And if you read the gospels, you'll notice that Jesus seemed to be really good at living in the moment. God himself is with me. There are angels everywhere. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But he said, take heart. have overcome the world. All breaking points begin the moment a person loses hope. There's a reason that the writer of Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. It's all reminiscent of another passage in the New Testament where Paul is talking to the church in Corinth about how spiritual gifts function within the church. It was my small group that drove 300 miles and stood outside in the snow at our funeral. Or it was my small group that was at hospice bringing us stuff when I barely even knew them. God had put us together with people in the same situation. It was just refreshing, and ever since then, now they've been our family. The Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance, that God looks at the heart. What if we had a generation that looked at the heart? Thank you so much for watching Kids Coast at Home with me today. Hey friends, we are so excited to welcome you back to Seacoast as we gather this weekend for in-person services. My name is Jack. I'm one of the pastors here at Seacoast. Uh, I lead our creative and data teams, uh, and uh, it's really great to have you with us here today. Whether you're watching from one of our campuses uh, or maybe online with Seacoast at home, uh, or hey, maybe you're watching from the archive in like 20 years. Uh, At that point, uh, President Dwayne The Rock Johnson will be working with Senate Majority Leader Tim Tebow to pass Netflix for all, because no American should go without the 31st season of the Great British Baking Show. (laughs) I am, of course, kidding. The Rock will be president in eight years, tops. Well, this is it. Listen, I'm not a big can I get an amen kind of guy, but it is the last weekend of 2020. Somebody help me out. (laughs) Oh, Are you ready for this year to end? Fun fact, when this year started, I was 11 years old. That's true. Here's a question. Has anyone else found themselves getting a lot more wrinkles around this area this year? I have. I have. Here's something about me. I did not grow up uh, in the South, and um, I'm still adjusting to the relational climate. Here's what I mean. Uh, If you're watching and you didn't grow up in the American South, maybe you've never been to the American South, um, it's like this. Every cashier, in every store, sees every customer as their brand new, very best friend. See, I know when I go to Publix, I'm going to get my groceries, I'm going to get a receipt, and I'm going to get a 15-minute conversation. And I really, really don't want to be rude. I don't. But I also like to get my milk home before it achieves room temperature. And so what I tend to do is I have always relied on just a, a big smile because I'm not doing a lot of talking. This year... I can't do that. All they have is the top half of my face. And so my eyes like scrunch up as much as I can to indicate the smile that must be there lurking behind my mask. What I'm saying is I don't get to do this a lot and I can't see your mouth. So can I have a lot of eye wrinkles this morning, please? When I was a kid, I played little league baseball and uh, I don't wanna brag because I was not very good. I wasn't bad, but very underwhelming at the plate. Um, It wasn't one of those deals where when I stepped up to bat, everyone moved infield, but no one felt the need to move back either. The thing was, I was scared of the ball. And when you're scared of the ball, it kind of impairs your ability to hit it. And then one year, I think second or third grade, I got hit by a pitch and that was it. I don't think I moved a muscle, let alone swung at the ball for the rest of the year. And I can remember uh, sometime in the next season, um, having a conversation with my dad, and I very proudly said to him, uh, you know, dad, I haven't gotten hit by a pitch all year long. And he pauses and he says, that's fine you know, that's not really the point of the game. I had gotten hurt, and I made never getting hurt again the point of the game. Have you ever been hurt uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and never being hurt like that again became a driving force in your life? I wonder how many of us move through life that way. I wonder how many of us didn't move through life that way Until this year. Um, Trying to avoid pain, it's not wrong. It's really not. But something happens when it becomes a driving force in our life. See, if avoiding pain is the driving force behind how I play baseball, I'm never going to hit the ball. If avoiding pain is the driving force in my relationships, I'm going to hold everyone at arm's length, and I'm never going to make myself vulnerable. We can orient our entire lives around the avoidance of pain, and we can get pretty good at it, but what happens is we end up avoiding living too. What's more, when we live this way, it totally warps our view of God. He ends up becoming this sort of cosmic helicopter parent whose entire role is to make sure that we don't come close to anything that might be dangerous. We don't do anything that's unsafe. Nothing hurts us. We stay happy and safe all the time. But that's not who God is. God's job is not to keep us safe and our lives pain free. One of the most important things we have to understand about God is this. When God doesn't do what I want or expect, even if that means letting me walk through pain, he is still good. When we make up our minds how God is supposed to act, we're going to find ourselves frustrated and discouraged when he does anything else. But how do we do this? How do we maintain our confidence in the goodness of God while making room for him to do the unwanted or unexpected. Today, I want to look at a story about three men who did exactly that, and in extreme circumstances. Our passage today is found in Daniel 3. So God's people are in exile. They have been conquered. Jerusalem is in ruins, and they have been brought in chains to the great city of Babylon. That's the context of the book of Daniel. And our passage starts in chapter three, and I want to read verses one and two. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits. It's about 90 feet high, and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, go back with me one chapter to Daniel chapter 2. In that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and in this dream, he sees this statue. In the statue, uh, the different parts of the body are made up of these different metals, gold, silver, bronze, iron. And Daniel comes and he interprets the dream. And what he tells Nebuchadnezzar is this statue represents all of these different kingdoms, right? Each metal represents a different kingdom. The head of the statue, which is made of gold, that's Babylon. And all of the other metals are the kingdoms that are going to come later. So immediately in this next chapter, what do we see? We see Nebuchadnezzar making this statue that is entirely of gold. It's like he heard this interpretation from Daniel, and he said, no, there's only Babylon. There's only me. There's only gold. And so he brings together all of the officials in the Babylonian empire to make sure that they are all in line. And they certainly would have been impressed. As I said, 60 cubits is about 90 feet tall. Now, we think that most of this 90 feet was probably some sort of pillar and that the statue kind of rested on top of the pillar. And so I, I thought, how can I help us visualize like, how tall 90 feet is? How can I help us you know, kind of imagine this? Can I tell you, nothing is 90 feet high. There are things that are shorter than 90 feet. There are plenty of things that are taller than 90 feet. But what I discovered is no one builds anything that is 90 feet high. Uh, a 737 is about 100 feet long. A third of a football field is 100 feet. Uh, a nine-story building is about 100 feet tall. Nothing is 90 feet. I did find uh, one thing that's 90 feet. 12 Shaquille O'Neal's stacked on top of each other is about 90 feet tall. I don't know if you use Shaquille O'Neal as a unit of measurement in your life, but I would encourage you to. Anyway, everyone is told, listen, we're going to play some music. And when you hear this music, you have to fall down and worship the statue. And then verse 6 says, And whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, isn't it kind of refreshing when leadership sets clear expectations? I mean, like there had to have been a guy that went home that day and said, you know, hon, I've been feeling kind of aimless at work lately. But today the boss just gave everyone some really clear next steps. There's this statue, music plays, I worship it, I don't, I burn to death. It's just nice to know what my supervisor wants from me. So the music starts and everyone falls on their face. Well, okay, so not everyone. Three guys, three Israelites are still standing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some other officials uh, who we think probably headed in for these guys, they beeline right to the king to wrap these three out. And this is what the passage says. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, To fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, the king is, in a sense, actually being really generous here. These three have just defied him to his face in front of every official in the empire. And he's not only willing to give them another chance, he's willing to have his orchestra play just for them so they can make this right. I mean, if I'm the king, I kind of can't believe I'm having this conversation. Do you think he cares if they mean it? Nebuchadnezzar isn't asking for sincerity. He's asking for compliance. Just fake it. Just pretend. No one will be able to tell the difference. When the music starts, just pretend like you're super into it. The way you pretend to like a band for a girl. I pretended to like the Dave Matthews band for a year of my life because of the girl I dated. Not worth it. So just just pretend. It's simple. Otherwise, he is going to kill you. And then the three respond. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. First, they say, our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us all. That's good. We like that. You can hear the music start to swell, and the camera starts to come in close, and they look very defiant and handsome. And then they say, but if he doesn't, okay, let's stop there. If I'm an editor working on this screenplay, this is when the red pen comes out. Okay, Uh, listen, this first part, God will deliver us, that is so good. Really, really strong. Uh, But here, you just sort of dissipate the tension but if not, what do you mean? But if not, these guys don't have a plan B plan B is an oven. Listen, I'm just going to cross out that line. I think you're going to see it makes the rest a lot better. We don't really like that second line. If we're honest, there aren't a lot of worship songs with lyrics like this. This is how I fight in my battles does not also have a line that says, but strategic retreats are also quite important ain't no grave going to hold my body down, does not have a line that says, except for the grave that holds my body down until the return of Christ, which might be thousands of years from now. And of course they don't. That's not what those songs are for. That's how I would write a worship song. And that's why the worship team doesn't return my calls. (laughs) The point is, when we want the resurrection, we don't want to hear not yet. And when we need to be delivered, we don't want to hear not yet but if not. But our lives are full of but if not moments. Moments when we know for certain how God can act, but we don't know whether he will act. And that's why I want to give us three thoughts today for when we are facing but if not moments. The first is this. God can deliver me from any difficulty. God can deliver me from any difficulty. No matter what you are facing, God can deliver you. And we should never doubt it. These three don't. They are utterly convinced of what God can do on their behalf. After all, they grew up hearing and learning about the God who put great Egypt on its face with plagues, the God who held up the walls of the Red Sea and who brought down the walls of Jericho. They knew the song of Moses, which says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. And we say it every week. Our God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. Our God has no limitations. And there is nothing he can't deliver you from. We could go on throughout the Old Testament. God uses a shepherd boy to fell a giant. He uses the armies of heaven to destroy an invasion force. He used prophets and judges, men and women, kings and farmers. He even uses great and mighty empires to accomplish his purposes. See, Nebuchadnezzar can't know this, but in just a few years, God will use a Persian army to crush Babylon. And free his people from exile. In the the gospels. Jesus delivers people from sickness. And hunger. He spits in the dirt. And delivers a blind man. By putting the mud on his eyes. He even delivers people. From the grip of death itself. Our God can do anything. And there is no difficulty. No trouble. No circumstances. That put you beyond the power of his reach. But. but often his deliverance isn't what we expect. And that's the second thought for us today. God's deliverance rarely looks like what I expect. God's deliverance rarely looks like what I expect. Frankly, I think he'd be hard-pressed to find examples in the Bible where God does what people are expecting him to do. When Moses Parts the Red Sea, there is not one Israelite at the back of the crowd saying, Oh, well, sure, yeah, I mean, right? When Jesus spits in the dirt and puts the mud on the blind man's eyes, is the guy's wife standing there saying, Thank you, thank you, I have been telling him to do that for years. Did he do it? He did not. When it comes to God's deliverance, there are just two questions Can he? And will he? We know the answer to the first. Yes, he can. He can deliver you from anything. But we don't know the answer to the second one. We feel like we should. We feel like anything other than a confident yes is a failure to trust, a failure of faith. But it isn't. Look at these three. They say something true about God, something that they believe believe completely. He can deliver us, and he will deliver us. And then they make room for him to do something else, something unexpected. The only reason the stories in the Bible feel inevitable to us is because we know how they end. Right? We're not confused when a shepherd boy faces a giant because we know that shepherd is David the greatest warrior and king Israel will ever have. When Jonah is swallowed by a great fish, we don't get stressed out because we know that that is the means of his deliverance. Jonah doesn't know that. He was probably kind of stressed out. God almost never does what we expect. And if we're being honest, we do not like that one little bit. No, we do not. Because when we need to be delivered, we want God to do what we want him to, frankly. But God's deliverance, even though we can confidently expect it, will almost always surprise us. And sometimes it surprises us because it doesn't come. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believe completely without reservation that God can keep them from being hurt. But they also know that he might not. Do we make room for God to do something other than what we want or expect? How many of our crises of faith, right, our spiritual wastelands come because God didn't do something we thought he should, and we don't know how to deal with it? We see this over and over in the Bible. Sometimes God doesn't deliver his people from what they're facing. Why? I don't know. Sometimes it's the case that when we look back, we can see the purposes of God all laid out. Joseph is a great example of this. Sold into slavery by his brothers, um, accused of a crime he didn't commit, thrown into prison. Uh, Joseph's early life was one disaster after another. But later, Looking back, after he had been elevated to Pharaoh's right-hand man, after he had saved Egypt and his own family from starvation, Joseph was able to see the grand purposes of God working through his pain. But frankly, Joseph is kind of a rare exception. Most of our experiences are like Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about a thorn in my flesh that God allowed him to endure. Paul says that he begged God to take it away. And each time God said, no. Why? Paul doesn't really know. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. But I mean, if that's me, that's not really a satisfactory answer. Sometimes God doesn't deliver us and we'll never really know why. And that doesn't mean there isn't a purpose. It just means that we might not see it until we get to heaven. And this is hard for us to accept, doesn't it? But one of the things that we should remember is that God himself walked this world as one of us. He experienced pain as we do. And in maybe the greatest, but if not moment in history, God chose not to deliver himself. In his final hours, we see Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He knows he's facing the cross and he doesn't want to go. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, Jesus says, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. He knows the father can deliver him and he kind of wants to be delivered. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Father, I want to be delivered and I know you can. But if not, that's okay. See, when we refuse to allow God to do the unwanted or unexpected, what actually happens is we unintentionally find ourselves joining in with the thief on the cross next to Jesus as he's saying, hey, look, if you're the son of God, get down off the cross, because what could be more unexpected? What could be more pointless than a God who allows himself to suffer? But Jesus didn't run from the garden. He didn't come down from the cross. And he didn't deliver himself because it was necessary for our deliverance. If the uncertainty of will he is hard for us, we should remember that our salvation, God's greatest victory, came out of Jesus' own but-if-not moment. A moment that Jesus embraced So that we could be delivered. And of course, that deliverance didn't look anything like anybody expected. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, they know God can deliver them. And they believe that he will deliver them. And then, for a moment, they realize he is not going to deliver them. The king hears their defiant words and throws them into the furnace. And that's that. Except it's not. This is what happens next. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The king Is shocked that the three aren't dead, but what really surprises him and I think fills him with dread is that there's a fourth person in the fire. And we don't know why, but he looks divine. When we are facing but if not moments, we need to remember that God can deliver us from any difficulty. We need to remember that his deliverance will rarely look like anything we're expecting. And the third thing we need to know, and I think the most important thing, is that God has promised to be with me. God has promised to be with me. God did deliver the three, right? but not until he had shared the fire with them. The truth is that God has not promised to deliver us from all of our pain and difficulties, but he has promised to be with us. This is the promise the whole world is moving towards. As Revelation 21, three through four says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's also a promise for each of us right now. In Joshua 1.9, God says, Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jesus' final words to his disciples included the promise, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The fourth man in the furnace is a picture of the gospel. It's actually a picture of Christmas. When we celebrate the moment that God himself entered our world to be one of us, to walk with us, to live with us, to be with us in our furnace. The promise God makes is his presence, and it's enough. This is what happens next. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. They come out. They've been delivered. Nebuchadnezzar has his question answered, the question, what God will deliver you out of my hands? And he is uh, kind of keen to make sure that this God isn't too angry with him. And so he says, therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Okay, I I think we can all agree this is kind of two steps forward, one step back. Increased religious tolerance, hey, that's great. Continued reliance on gruesome murder for disobedience, you know, we, we can, that's a later thing, we can deal with that later. What about the fourth person? Where's he? Well, we aren't told. But I think we know. See, I think when the three men came out of the furnace, he was with them. Because I think the furnace revealed what had always been true. Their God was with them wherever they went. The three men come out forever changed. For they had seen this promise with their own eyes. I bet they never looked the same. I bet they even looked, in the words of the king, like a son of the gods. One of the biggest problems with living as though the meaning of life is avoiding pain is that we end up missing all of our but if not moments, too. I mean, are we, are we only supposed to thank God when He blesses us? Are we only supposed to be happy with Him when He does what we want? Or expect? Don't you think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to the end of their lives, were grateful for the furnace? Do you think that they regretted for a moment embracing their but-if-not moment? Do you think Jesus regrets embracing his but-if-not moment? What if Jesus avoids his? What if he runs? Well, then we're lost, and we have no hope. So I never stopped being scared of the ball, ever. I think I probably swung a little bit more after that conversation with my dad. You know, you got to put on a show. But I never got over my fear. Avoiding pain, not getting hit, stayed the driving force whenever I was at the plate. Now, each moment at bat could have been a little but-if-not moment. And I missed every single one. We need but if not moments. Because if we avoid them, if we insist on delivering ourselves from pain, then we never get to experience what God wants to do in us in those moments. We never get to see him deliver us. We never experience his presence in the furnace. And we never come out looking more like him. Go back with me one more time to Jesus in Gethsemane. When we need God to deliver us, and he does, then we get to celebrate. But if not, then we have the chance to say, like Jesus, not my will. Not my will, but yours be done. In other words, we have the chance to look like Jesus. Isn't that the point? 2020 has been a transformational year. And for me, I think that's been true in large part because there have been so many but if not moments that I haven't been able to avoid moments where I wanted God to deliver me and he said no and my instinct is still to shield myself from that pain right but I also have the chance to embrace that moment right to embrace the but if not moment and say to God I know you can deliver me and I want you to. But if not, that's okay too. When I embrace the moments that way, and when we embrace our but if not moments, we look more like Jesus. And at the end of a year like this, when I look around the room, what I see are so many people who look more like Jesus than they did at the beginning of this year. We should always pray for deliverance and be confident that God can and will. But I think our prayers should also contain a but if not, as we tell God that we trust him no matter what is in front of us, that we are grateful for his presence. And I think when we pray those prayers, we can hear God make the same promise to us that he made to his people through the prophet Isaiah. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned in the flames shall not consume you. Let's pray. Father, today we looked at one but if not moment, and this year we have had so many. And it is just so difficult in those moments to deal with the question, will you? Will you deliver us? Father, help us in those moments to have the trust to say, but if not, to say your will, not ours, be done. Help us to look more like Jesus in those moments and help us to encourage one another. You know, I think that one of the things that maybe enabled Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to say, but if not, is that they weren't alone. So help us to encourage one another in these moments, to remind one another that we are not alone. We are together, and no matter what, we have your presence. Thank you for your provision for us. Thank you that no matter what, you are good. We pray all of these things in your name, amen.